0: started, I uh, think are all very formal, because you uh, have never been to a faculty said, Hello, hello. hello, hello, where is So, um, and please, you know, get a Have yourself twenty. more tea, there's some company, don't need, don't need that, you know? um, so many things the that, so. So, I'm Mary Falcon, I'm the director of faculty development, and uh, I really want to thank um, Angie and Julie for coming to do this. Um, Angie had done this well, last year, we did um, the first of these, um, Sort of sessions on uh, students on the autism spectrum, and it was really well attended. People were really interested in the topic, so we um, decided to do another one. Uh, hey, um, and um, and and sort of keep the conversation going because it's so important. Um, so uh, that's pretty much all I have to say. Please make sure you sign in at some point. That we do send out a little survey in, uh to get feedback, uh,
1: and uh, leave it to you guys. Take it away. Hey,
0: everybody. Yeah. Um, I'm Angie the Director of School of Support Services. I'm Julie <laughs> I'm one the psychologists at the Counseling Center. Um, so, today we want to talk, uh, as Marie said, a little bit more about autism spectrum disorder and understanding what that means for students that are here um, pursuing higher education. Um, our goal today is for you to have an understanding of the disorder, to be able to kind of recognize the signs and feel more uh, competent when you're faced with students who are dealing with some of these challenges. Um, we certainly intend for the presentation to be interactive so if you have questions, feel free to um, you know, just raise your hand and ask your question and we'll also save time at the end. But um, before we get started, I thought it might be helpful just so we know who you are. If you don't mind, we'll put the in the room.
1: I'm standing. I'll start. <laughs> okay, <there we> go. <laughs> Good afternoon. I'm Benjamin Pearl. I'm a full term instructor in the student tool business. I primarily teach um, decision sciences or information technology at an undergraduate level, um, on an MBA level, actually especially with a little more students from a disability perspective, I've built two online MBA classes and being more and more cognizant with some of the uh, formatting testing performance with disabilities and other acts. I actually have a son that's 14, a couple weeks that is ASD, diagnosed, I've been down this world since, I guess, age one and a half, two, and I think it's Pretty interesting. Uh, not only teaching here, but I teach as an adjunct at some schools in New York, St. John's, St. Paul, as an example. So St. John's, Daruk, St. Paul here, and then Fairley really Dickinson once in a while. And more and more students in my classes are bringing the DSS paperwork. So you need to think about how do you reasonably accommodate, how do you change your method of instructing, not only as a whole, but for those certain individuals that you need more time, extensions. Reasonable combination, interpretation, et cetera, et cetera. So, definitely a good session. Looking forward to here, new perspectives in the academic perspective of ASD.
0: I'm going to sit. Thank you, Welcome. Um, my name is Dolph I'm in the uh, School of Health and Medical Sciences, so we're a graduate level program. Um, a little different in the fact that we are uh, training people to be healthcare providers, um, so we have a clinical component. Where we've actually we've actually met and and we had a couple of students on the ASP spectrum that were having a lot of issues in their clinicals and where does the uh, accommodations versus the needs of the healthcare provider sort of merge and and how how much accommodations can we give and um, so I am here because we continue to have students come into our program and we need
1: to continue to figure this out. Okay. My name is Nina. I'm a librarian. Uh, I come to understand the state of students with autism. Well, um, um, sorry, I'm Sebastian. I'm from the library. I work with Maine. Um, my interest is uh, personal professional. professional. Uh, professional colleague of mine, Jerry, another librarian who can't be here, we've been looking at um, library services for students with autism. We presented a conference um, uh, session this winter at a library conference in Rutgers and a conference in Cleveland. And we talked to Angie about this a little bit. Of, I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Then further after this, we want to try and see how the library can be kind of a, a resource for campus, for students, for work here um, to help promote awareness of autism. And personal. I'm a five-year-old son who's not been diagnosed with this as well, so this is all very quite fresh for me, so I'm just happy to be here. Thanks for putting this on, Hi, I'm Kevin. Uh, I'm a fellow of the CORE program. Uh, in my experience, it seems that students on the Austin spectrum are ne- a neglected student population, and so I'm just happy to hear about a lot of the better students. I'm also at the library, and you know, some you know, <laughs> My next
0: I'm Melissa Martini, I'm the graduate assistant for the Center for Faculty Development. Hi Sandra Ackman, Sinclair, I'm a staff psychologist at the California Center. the I'm Michael, I'm an extern at the CAP Center. Thank you all for coming in. It just helps us I think the frame how we're talking about things out and understanding. So, a little background information on autism spectrum disorder. Um, it is a neurological condition affecting how an individual's brain works. It's not a choice, it can't be cured, it can't be remediated. Um, for the most part, when we talk about students with autism spectrum disorder on a college <coughs> campus, we're talking about those who are a little higher functioning. So, it is a spectrum um, that I don't know if Julie might address that piece, but it recently changed kind of diagnostically to be called autism spectrum disorder, and that really captures that there are some individuals who are very well-functioning, all the way up to individuals who are very high-functioning and everything in between, um, but for the most part when we're talking about students that are here on this campus, they tend to be higher-functioning in that they were able to make it into college and for the most part function pretty, um, pretty well in college, although there may be some supports or accommodations that they need. Um, to some extent, however, they, they may stand out in certain mm-hmm. ways, um, uh, you know, compared to quote unquote, neurotypical students. Um, so, that's something that we'll kind of talk about as we move forward and look at some of the characteristics of students on the spectrum. So, as Angie just mentioned, we now see autism on the spectrum. So, before you might have heard the term Asperger's syndrome um, to really delineate those higher functioning individuals who didn't have the same communication deficits as individuals that were thought to be more compared with an autism diagnosis. Now we think of it as a spectrum, so Asperger's is considered an out-of-date freeze, and we think that there is individuals that are low-functioning to really high-functioning. As Angie mentioned, the students we see at college are really, tend to be on a high-functioning end where some of their disability might appear more invisible, and so they're dealing more with the internal aspects of the disorder rather than the overt behavioral things that you may consider as part of the diagnosis that you see the her kids or individuals who may be lower-functioning on the spectrum. So you'll hear us use ASD just to use that phrase, and that encompasses higher functioning as well. There's other common terms I just want you to be aware of, especially if you're meeting individuals on the spectrum who do self-identify. As professionals and parents in the field, will use the term person with autism, using what's called person-first language to just make it really clear that this individual is more than an autistic individual. There's different parts to them, different areas of strengths and weakness, so that they're person-first and their disability is second interestingly um, in the literature a lot of individuals who are on the spectrum are saying that they want to be called autistic person rather than person with autism the understanding being that autism is pervasive through aspects of themselves and throughout areas there in, in their lives and they're saying that we should take away the stigma and destigmatize autism by saying, I'm an autistic person, this is what my difficulty is, and this is how I need to be accommodated, or this is what I need to do in my environment, but don't label me and try to hide that this is the difficulty that I have. So there's this push for destigmatization with it. I still use person with autism language from my experience, that you may hear individuals feeling that they'd rather
1: have that for you. Question. How does that, I guess, coincide with, the New Jersey admin of how they define it and how see all defined to
0: So in terms of you mean like a diagnostic so or like K-12, K-12 12 admin? Is that what you
1: think? See that's, yeah, that's <laughs> great, right, because you see a lot of different interpretations because K-12 with an IEP or other mandates have to classify here. If I get a form from a student from BSS, it's very vague. We're, We're going to actually
0: talk about that, we have the differences between like the K-12 and the high of college because what you're seeing then are individuals who have one set of supports and one understanding and now there's a total shift in it. So we have a slide on that and a few slides distinguishing that difference. But in terms of labels, these are still going to be diagnoses that are given of an autism spectrum disorder. It's more the latter two um, rows are really more what language the person refers <coughs> to. So we advocate that if somebody does self identify, see what terms they prefer. Similarly, we'll talk about neurotypical as an individual without autism or without any kind of neurological difficulty, versus um, now again it's a phrase that's being advocated for within the autism community, is holistic, meaning that neurotypical is implying that individuals who don't have autism are all fine, when in reality they may have ADHD or other cognitive impairments. And somehow we're further distinguishing the individual with autism from the individual who doesn't have autism. And so there's this movement within the autistic community to refer to individuals as holistic if they're not diagnosed with autism. And really that's saying that they're not autistic versus neurotypical, which means we a broad range of cognitive functioning. So again, it's these like slight term preferences, but I've noticed recently, just trying to be more sensitive, that there is a preference to what individuals want to be identified with and how they see themselves and how they see the disorder. Ultimately, when we talk about this, we're talking about their own personal view of stigma and their own personal choice. So we'll go more into the common deficits that you'll see with autism later on in the presentation and how they will but just to kind of frame what we see in the community. You're going to see that social communication interaction difficulty, so maybe a lack of reciprocity, difficulty initiating and maintaining relationships, um, difficulty navigating both verbal and nonverbal communications, especially a need isn't being met. You may see movement, it may appear like there's a lack of fluency in movement, there might be more awkward movement. Often, a lot of individuals will have comorbid issues that warrant physical or occupational therapy. There's an inflexible adherence to routines, so individuals with autism know their structure and they know their routine. Coming from a high school environment, that environment allowed them to have a certain set of structures that allowed them to predict this is my routine, this is what's going to happen. Now we're in college where there's no structure, the routine is more be. And when they impose structure and routine, if that is violated in any way, it can really lead to a lot of difficulty with their We'll see fixated interest or um, restricted areas of interest. This might be really notable in terms of what major somebody picked. So they may have a really hard time fulfilling liberal arts requirements because they just want to get to that area of interest that is most important to them. Um, and then we see sensory issues, which so we'll do with different lights, down, uh, being overwhelmed by lot of stimuli in their environment, and how
1: that. Just thinking of prevalence,
0: I think this is really important to frame how significant this issue is, especially in higher education. So if we look back, the 2018 data was just released and that takes into individuals that were assessed in 2014. And when we look at the numbers, we're looking at individuals at age 8. So when you see a statistic that says this is how many individuals, it's by age 8, this is how many individuals are reported as being diagnosed with autism. In 2012, we saw it as 1 in 68. We're at 1 in 59 now. When you look at the ratio in New Jersey, we're at 1 in 34, which is the highest in the nation. Um, If we take that ratio down a little bit further, we actually do not see any, any racial disparity. So We see the same number of individuals who are white, who are black or African American, who are Hispanic or Latino. Being diagnosed, we just see that they're diagnosed at an older rate when they're coming from a minority background. That's really significant because the earlier the age of diagnosis, the better individuals are <coughs> able to remediate some portions of their
1: difficulty. So older age is a poorer outcome. Share the
0: PowerPoint, the,
1: uh, the data. Yeah. Thank
0: you. Yeah. For sure. One more thing that's really notable that stat is 1 in 34 might be in New Jersey, but it's 1 in 22 for boys. So if you're sitting in a class that has 20, roughly 20-25 males in it, you're likely sitting with a student who's somewhere on the autism spectrum. So just thinking about the prevalence on campus, we're really seeing a lot more of this. Um, just to address the New Jersey trend, we're not really sure why New Jersey's higher. We know that there's more resources, so there is better diagnosis. We also know that um, maternal age tends to be older in New Jersey and that sometimes linked to autism. When we look in higher education, we know 36% of individuals with autism attend some type of post-secondary education and 32% of those attend four-year universities. So not a large amount of individuals are attending college. That's roughly a third um, will come post-secondary education and then only a third of that third is getting to the university, left, the four-year college university level. So again, this speaks more to different supports and services that are at the K-12 level, but a lot of individuals aren't making it to college and yet that number is growing, right? So before it used to be like 10%, now we're at 30%. So it's growing and it's becoming more that services are helping individuals remediate and get to the college level. So on college campuses now we're seeing about 2% of individuals diagnosing autism. We estimate, though, for every one person diagnosed, one to two are not diagnosed. So if you think about a campus our size, we'll say there's roughly 200 students across the campuses diagnosed with autism. Then you're gonna have another two to 400 students not diagnosed with autism. So you're looking somewhere in the ballpark about 500 individuals at this university would fall somewhere on the autism spectrum, whether diagnosed or not. At four-year universities, any, so of that 32%, 86% attend full-time. We know that 50% are STEM majors. So they're falling somewhere in those science, mathematics, technology, so we really need to be mindful of um, when we're working with students, especially educating other professors or individuals we know who teach those majors, this is where we're gonna see a large breadth of those students. And so unfortunately, the needs of individuals on autism are just being understood at that college level. If you think back to the statistics I just showed with prevalence, 1 in 68 10 years ago were diagnosed with, with autism at the age which means that's the age that is now coming to college. So we see about 1 in 68 in college, and less than 20% are finishing in a five-year period. When you look at the seven-year outcome, we're at about 40 percent, so it's not really great graduation rates, again, because the understanding of what accommodations are needed and how to transition individuals from the structure of K-12 to college is really poorly understood. And then when we look at who is diagnosed, about a third of those individuals say, I don't have a disability anymore by the time they enroll in college. So a third of individuals had a lot of structure and support and services when they were in high school and now they come to college and they're like, I'm fine, a lot of this is remediated, this isn't an issue anymore, and they don't want to enroll in DSS, they don't want to come to counseling for support because they feel like they're okay. And now the demands have shifted and we see that gap. And that really kind of links back now to why the graduation rate is lower because we're seeing these individuals not necessarily knowing or accessing the services they need some questions. Kind of tie it back to the terminology that you were talking about earlier. So, my I have a brother who's deaf, and like the deaf, it's a deaf culture, right? So, there's a lot that goes around with that, where it's not a disability, it's a culture, it's who they are, and I think there's a like, confidence that comes with that, and like kind of a welcoming that comes with that. And the students that are coming through now, how many of them? I think if they identify as an autistic person in the community of autistic people, it is the idea that that would help them be more accepting and like looking for what services they need. Then my brother has no problem asking for interpreters or asking for people you close know, closed captioning to be put on the TV. and more like at the restaurants and bars, like is is there a kind of like a mental shift that's coming with that? So, and I do know if you see it differently, but from what I saw, especially I came from SDU's compass program, which was forced from on coming onto the spectrum. And from that perspective, I think there's a level of acceptance of diagnosis that means the individual can better self-advocate, right? So if they are understanding and they're like, you know, this is hard to me, this is where my difficulties are, this is what I need, it's exactly that, right? I can self-advocate for myself. I feel supported. I feel like I have a network of individuals who understand me. But you will be surprised by the amount of individuals we come through where it's like a parent saying, don't tell them that they're diagnosed with this, or like a kid who never knew that was their diagnosis, but parents knew. So when there's a lot of secrecy around it, then the individual doesn't know how to self-advocate to the same degree, and isn't aware then, like what do I need to do this better? And then isn't able to access those supports resources that in terms of like the mental health perspective make them feel more accepted of their identity and who they are, with greater awareness makes the idea that some of that will shift, right? That yeah. the student would that not not the, hope, right? the parents, like, mm-hmm. are not hiding it from the kid. The student is understanding it more, and they are even that Yeah. Because we had a number of people come through our program last year. None of them, I mean, it was pretty clear that they were all on the ASD spectrum, and not one of them brought anything from DSS admitted to having a problem with seek assistance. Even though we're like, you need to seek assistance or you will fail out of this program. They just fell out, like they never went that other step. So
1: we have, we have a program right. here that now composite the composite of you.
0: No, we don't. We don't know. Yeah. So that's a specialized support program where they have a, a staff of individuals who work specifically in this program. The teachers pay into it, additional fee for There's not very many. They're growing across the country, but they're they're pretty limited. And that could be part of why we don't see the numbers to where they quote unquote should be statistically and why the ones who I do see tend to be more like Julia's describing, maybe not of their diagnosis or maybe not as great at as self-advocating. Um, there's a lot of things I have to read through the lines in documentation <laughs> to determine, okay, I know your disability documentation says this, but I think that, um, and then, you know, to get the projection, hopefully within a few years it will be a little bit more transparent you know, as I think there's a, the beginning of the movement. I think kind of social media, mm-hmm. and you know, with corporations recognizing the gifts and talents that students on the spectrum can bring. It, but you know, culture changes too. Yeah. <laughs> so we might get there one day. but Definitely. Yeah. So a little, just a, a little bit about. Um, some of those changes. So, IDEA is the law that oversees disability uh, accommodations and such special education in the K through 12 environment. And then the ADA and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act are what oversee what we do here at the college level. And there is quite a bit of difference between the two of them. Um, the IDEA is set up as a law of entitlement, meaning if you um, are eligible for services. The um, school must provide them. They seek you. they have an obligation to seek students out, to find the services, identify what they need, provide them, and everyone is guaranteed a free and appropriate public education up until they graduate or age 21. Um, that is different in the post-secondary world, certainly. We have to qualify with the, you know, gain admittance into college. Students still meet the same guidelines at the post-secondary level, the same admissions criteria. And they have a continuing obligation to remain otherwise qualified, which is why, kind of what Dawn is talking about in terms of, you know, if it's not just the academic piece, but if they also choose a program that has a clinical piece, you know, that comes into account. They have to be qualified um, to be all the essential functions of the program. Uh, But ADA is really a civil rights law. Uh, We're looking to make sure that students are not discriminated against. Um, and have full um, ex- uh, equal access to all of their courses, programs, services, etc. Um, the difference in terms of disclosure, right? So we don't disclose the disabilities on those letters of accommodation. Um, we leave that up to the students. Some students do choose to share that information with their professors, but they don't have to. Um, what? What the law says they need to know is what accommodations you need to provide as an instructor. Um, so obviously, when it's you know, we can have a conversation with the disability services about why they might want to consider sharing a little bit more information than they "quote unquote" need to. Um, but it, at the end of the day, it's up to the student.
1: Well, the magical act is a free access to public education, so it's free and we feel that I go to those free services. Unfortunately you lawyer up the EDA versus CPA, you're not going to be able to do that as traditions that you can wish to vers the IPA. There's facts.
0: <laughs> There's mechanisms. <laughs> not office for civil rights stuff we think I'm knocking at the door. Um, but the important thing here is that if you think of all the structure and support given under IDEA versus the American Disability Act, you're coming to college and now having to self-advocate. Isn't doing it for them. That's a huge shift in mentality for the individual on the spectrum. Their use of their parents or their educational system taking care of it, their teachers understanding what's going on. So there's a whole level of unofficial accommodation associated as well that isn't going to be seen as readily in the college environment. Right, so even just um, the student being able to share that letter of accommodation with their professor to really talk about what that means or how to go about facilitating it, that's a huge step for them. Honestly, even just planning out their schedule and making it to class and keeping track of their assignments is a big piece uh, because in the K-12 environment
1: there could have been a lot more resources to help them with that. One quick question. Sure. Some schools have moved away from the piece of paper and now they have an ID card. Just one of the ID card gives you credit to certain services or activities on campus like here's all paper right? They do they have I they have certain accommodations needs to be like it's not a term style or access badge type of university, but in terms of other types of schools, maybe they're using that as waiting for them to utilize those services. Do you see that? I am that? not
0: in the state of New Jersey so much. I mean, like, if you do monthly meetings with other just or providers. I don't know, that's interesting. That's something so you're saying if a student went to the library, for
1: instance, it would
0: be coded in
1: there. Yeah, some are getting ID a guys? card. So instead of bringing me a piece of paper, they have an ID card. Hmm. Now, maybe it's affiliated with DSS, but it, it's somehow embedded in their record that they have this I wouldn't say classification, but they're doing, I have services rendered through DSS. Okay.
0: The tough balance, I feel like, between uh, confidentiality right. and, and sort of, and then trying right. to make sure that they have the support. That's interesting. So, um, I mean, in higher education what we see with students on the spectrum are difficulties in executive functioning, things like planning, time management, and organization, um, essential life skills really for every successful college student, right? It's not just students on the spectrum, obviously, who struggle with these things, but they're somewhat pronounced. Um, there could there could be students who struggle with academics, although for the most part, most of our students don't. Um, sometimes they may need extra time with Exams and things of that nature, but not so much um, struggling with the content.
1: I'm sorry. I know this is short side, but I'm still thinking about what I just thought about. Have you ever seen any instances of fraud where people, students, have fraudulently represented themselves as a disability to get certain? I don't want to say entitlement, a certain relief.
0: Um. Well, they have to go through our process, which I'm to talk about, but they have to go through the disability services process. We require documentation.
1: We need. To but I, as a teacher, only get a piece of paper. Right. And what are what are my rights or my ability to inquire or challenge the merits?
0: Well, if you get a so piece kind of paper that you question, you can always check out disability support services. We're, we're providing it. And it is electronic now, too, which has our... Um,
1: which easily easily made up. You know, yeah, but we
0: we give our students the option. They're, well, they all have it electronically, and if they want hard copies, we'll go to the hard copies too. Where I will physically type the piece of paper. Um, but I do have a couple professors who can me and say, Is "This legit." I say, "Yes." Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen anybody shake <laughs> it. I think of <laughs> the opposite of being the issue <laughs> that like they're they're not disclosing or they're not seeking right. far more than it's like one or two to five. It certainly does not outweigh the amount of individuals who are not. Coming to our services, or who are not telling them, or who have the accommodations and don't show the letter to their professors, until so too late. I know when I teach, that tends to be more of the bigger issue I have than doubting the veracity of it. Yeah. Um. So um, communication, we're gonna, and I think we're going to go through the slides, we'll talk a little bit more about some of these, but communication is one area where you can, can sometimes see students on the spectrum having a little bit more difficulty. Sometimes it's just the pattern or their style of communication. At the same time, I will say that a lot of the students that I see have had so much support if they were identified early, that they're, you know, all the different kinds of therapists, um, occupational uh, Speech, etc., that sometimes there almost is no difference in their speech patterns, and they're not really recognizable that way. So that's one of those things that kind of depends on the individual. Um, but there could be certain things like um, I've worked with students in the past who who just they talk very loudly, or to talk very, very closely to you, and have some like personal space issues. Um, not uncommon, I would say. Um, and then social skills and relationships and campus life. I feel like those are two other areas that we really do see. On some adjustment difficulties, um, a lot of students historically have struggled with the social skills relationship piece. Yet it's such an important piece in terms of a well-rounded life, and so I think that, um, that can make adjusting to the college life difficult. Um, again, we go back to it's so unstructured, right? So especially if they're living away from home for the first time and at, you know college residence hall. Supposed to go to these programs, but what is that? What you know? What's involved with that? A lot of people. I don't really know anybody. So that can be some sometimes um, difficult for students on the
1: spectrum. <laughs>
0: so again, executive functioning. Um, you know, it, all the thinking, making plans, decision making, um, impulse control. Um, A lot of students are concrete the way that they think, Um, black and white. Um, Some are not able to kind of, or don't like to be challenged in the way that they think, which can be um, challenging in a liberal arts environment. I think the kinds of courses that we require students to take. Um, And a lot of students have a preference for their routine and order. Um, And again, another piece here is maybe not in terms of foresight, not planning ahead. We do still see a number of students who um, don't identify with disability support services, don't seek accommodations or services of any kind until there's a problem. Um, And so it's kind of that, again, i transitioning into a whole new environment away from something that was structured and very supportive and had all these resources um, that don't really necessarily have everything put in place that necessarily I might need to succeed. So, in class, we'll see these individuals that are having a hard time remembering or meeting deadlines and due dates. We'll see them having a difficult time um, organizing their materials. So, assignments or submissions or due dates will be more um, disorganized or not as structured as you may see in other classes. You'll see impaired decision making, so I can think of a student who involved a professor to let them know that they were having a really hard time socializing and they finally got a social date on the calendar and so they were going to go to that date rather than class because that was <laughs> so much more of a challenge, right? And so not recognizing that decision making that uh, class comes before, if you're going to prioritize that, way, don't let the professor know, <laughs> right? So that decision making can be really challenging, um, there's greater impulsivity, so sometimes we'll see like the other difficulties we'll talk about, remediate, but there's a great impulsivity that starts at this age to begin with. So you'll see individuals maybe they start driving have more car accidents or they may take more risks. Um, they might not recognize what's the safe part of campus outside to walk around versus where they might be in more danger. So you'll see some of that like impulsivity and risk-taking unintentionally as well. Not as much necessarily the cost in effect, but we might see it more in our end too. Um, so some strategies in terms of working with students on the spectrum, um, I think, you know, if we recognize that they tend to by nature not have that innate organization and structure themselves, then as a professor, to the degree that you can, is just to provide that. So making sure that you do have specific due dates, or clarify if you change something, make sure that they understand that something has changed. Um, if it's possible, provide examples of. Assignments or papers, things so that they have a frame of reference. They understand what that expectation is. Um, timing, something where um, sometimes you might see an accommodation listed that a student should or might need a little bit of extra time, an extension of a due date. But a lot of times you won't. So um, you treat them as you would any other student, unless you know specified as an accommodation. Um, But due to the reasons that students are discussed in terms of of planning and time management and things like that, sometimes you will see accommodation for some flexibility when it comes to due dates. Um, However, that is not every single assignment, all the time, always late, without any advocacy without any communication, there's kind of some stipulations around that piece as well. Um, Checking for comprehension when you're working with a student. Um, I feel like office hours are pretty valuable for students on the spectrum, just a way to communicate one-on-one and get that outside support. Um, we were working with the same individual this past um, semester. Who that really I think made a, a big difference for him. Was that his professor was willing to be with him one on one and kind of he would do this. He would check. Okay, do you understand the assignment? Let's you know. Let's reiterate. Let's focus. Let's map out a timeline. And I think help, helping that individual to kind of learn how to you know have that structure was was really successful for him. Um, and just you know as much as possible be encouraging. Um, if you think the student needs extra support, don't be afraid to reach out. Um, whether it's just the services or CATS or the Economic Resource Center, um, there's academic coaches available who are just, you know, faculty and staff and administrators on campus that are willing to kind of mentor students, and that can be really valuable to have that extra person um, to meet with and help structure their lives. One of the things too when we talk about things like extra credit or um, like testing accommodations is really to see fun what's on their letter but you're going to treat the student as you would any other student. So you're giving them no more but no less accommodations than you would any other student who comes to you asking for extra credit or an unofficial accommodation. Um, sometimes, we'll talk about it a little bit more in the later slides, students on the opposite spectrum might appear more disinterested or disengaged and especially if they're continued. Um, disability is more invisible, you may be less willing to work with that student and that might just be that you're not seeing the whole picture. So communication problems, we talked about limitations in receptive and expressive language, delayed processing and response in social situations, and lacking nonverbal communication skills. Often when we put these entire communication difficulties into a package, we see that often there's a lot of misunderstanding, frustration, we'll hear about like awkward conversations or awkward interactions with students on the spectrum, just frankly confusion because if the student's nonverbals are signaling with disinterest and disengagement and they're coming to you for support, you might not be able to very easily rectify that discrepancy if the diagnosis is not apparent. So, when we talk about a lot of the communication difficulties, we're talking about that dialogue interaction that can be really hard. Maybe it doesn't seem as receptive to the individual or it's not as reciprocal. Um, sometimes we'll get concerns from professors that I feel that the student comes and is talking at them instead of listening to what the professor has to say, or that the professor feels that the student is very direct, blunt, and not kind of working their angle and trying to get the support or the conversation. So, again, just kind of acknowledging that maybe there's a communication. To hear with the student. Often, more times than not, um, especially in the past, it's, a of the professors, it's that nonverbal that really throws individuals off. Maybe it's the blank stare or the look like disinterested or disengagement that can be a signaling that like the student's shutting down rather than that there's not engaging in what's going on. So when we talk about strategies, we're talking about being really direct and specific. Oftentimes I think we want to be sensitive to the student and we want to be able to be kind and gentle and we misinterpret that if we're direct we're somehow being offensive or rude. When really if we let individuals know what the rules are and how to kind of play the game of our class, they're gonna do really well. So whenever you can be direct, and Specific, not in a harsh tone, but keeping your term. I like the idea of like, being firm but gentle. This is what you need to do, this is how you need to do it. You're helping that student. Wherever you can impose structure is really helpful for them. Um, be concrete and literal with language. So, as direct as you can be, but also as concrete. So, individuals will not be able to pick up on slang or colloquial language. Um, they may not get like, off the terms that we'll use. Um, so, I remember a uh, professor saying to well, you can a horse to water but you can't make it drink and the student being like, I'm just trying to figure out how to do better in the class and the professors talking about horses. Like not really understanding those different phrases. So making sure that as whenever possible it's concrete, it's clearly explained. In um, small steps, sometimes breaking it down into smaller steps can be really helpful for the individual and writing it down wherever possible. So the communication, if you're going to break something down, you can make some notes and list it out, Like we talked about that academic slide, you're going to do a huge service to that student, and it typically won't take too much time to do that. And give verbal instructions in a clear logical order, and again I would emphasize that if you can follow up in an email or you can write it down that's super important, especially if you can keep like, really short bullets and numbers, that's really helpful. I also think it's really helpful to, to have the individual summarize back to you what you just said, not only for checking for comprehension, but letting you know that if I'm gonna write this down, what points do I really need to make sure it's the most clear for the student. One of the things that comes up with communication strategies is watching tone, because so sometimes when we're breaking things down unintentionally, our tone may become what might feel more patronizing to the student. So we want to make sure we're still talking to them as an adult, but we're doing so in just a simpler, more clear, kind of smaller steps than the we do. I have a general question. So, one of the main co problems programs that we have outside clinical experiences, where every semester our students go out and they work with a clinical instructor in some sort of, in our case, athletic training setting. Um, These are not employees of the university, right, so there's all these FERPA laws that we can't, even if a student has some DSS stuff, but we can't tell that to our, or at least it's my understanding that we can't tell that to our clinical instructor. So now we may have some information about how the student needs to be communicated with educated on what are the rules? Like, can I share this with a clinical instructor? Say, you know, with this student you may need to be more direct and specific. Like, watch the you know, how much can I share with a clinical instructor that's not employed by the program? You know, like, yeah, no, that, that's a good question. To <laughs> I'm thinking like, well, I'm not a lawyer, but um, I would have a conversation with the student first. Um, and especially if you you know work with them, you kind of have some concerns about how this can translate in that clinical realm, and talk with them about it. And then with the student's permission, and you know maybe together, DSS, the faculty member, the clinical instructor, the student, huh. let's share what's pertinent. Let's share what's relevant. Like you still don't even have to share diagnostic, right? Right. So and that's not kind of breaking like that piece of confidentiality. Huh. But if it's if the student agrees and it's going to help set them up for success, and mm-hmm. to share just a couple strategies and tips and things like that and I think that we can, okay. and I think we should, because you know what I mean, like, yeah, because um, it's always like, like you're throwing them out there and like just waiting for a stumble, yeah. right. whereas maybe if we just have that phone call ahead, time, I mean, I have worked with you know, like sort of blind students in classrooms and things like that, I and mean, we've made a call before, you know, and, you know i made a call with the education department, the education department was working with the faculty, teacher, etc. So, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think there is some information we can share, it just has to, again, be with the students permission Because our students, the students have had the hardest time in these clinical settings, mm-hmm. Yes it's more social, you know, it's, there is a, a uh, relationship component, there's a social component. There's a, especially among athletics, you know, it's it's much more casual in a lot of ways. And the student has a hard time sort of differentiating that. And I think if the clinical instructor had a little bit more understanding, understanding, they could help them guide that. Not to say that they still don't have to deal with this situation, but Mm -hmm. if they had, you know, most of our clinical instructors figured it out pretty quickly, but it was still, you know, three, four weeks in, and, now and that's something that you to look at, too, especially if you tend to go to, like, the same sites and you have the same clinical instructors, et cetera. Maybe we can just do a training in general, right. not specific to any student, but just, just in general. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. I see it, though, as two tier just going off of what you said. Like, the first thing is teaching the individual to advocate for themselves. So, like, how can they talk to their instructor about what they find is the best working environment for them or where they're having a difficulty. Because ultimately, if you think of the role in college, you're kind of that transition point between high school and them going into the workforce. Yeah. So they're going to have to advocate at some point in their lives right? But they don't have to be there for them. And so how can they learn to self-advocate and express their weaknesses? And then also speaking in generalities, like when I work with a student, I find they respond best when I do. And you're not really disclosing the diagnosis. You're just saying, what well, you've learned about working with yeah. that student. Mm-hmm. And I think both are helpful. But I think the communication strategy of like writing in down, but also having the students verbalize them themselves as part of our issue is our students go out within the first four weeks. Yeah. So you don't even know yet. So we don't yeah, like, uh, we don't really Like we're figuring out at the same time that yeah. they're like being thrown in and it's sort of this difficult balance. But yeah. well, what kind students are literally on their own as opposed to they not have support from their parents or maybe some kind of organization like right here in South Guest House? These students are not typically affiliated with an organization like that. I don't know about in terms of support from their parents. That's not um, a piece, I guess, that I. Help. So they're really not getting this outside. I kind of hoping that like who should get in touch with your? No, yeah, I mean they're just like every other college student going to student going to the university independently, just like everybody else. I mean, they might have certain systems with their parents where they check in, and you know, but I don't know. I think that probably varies just as much with students on spectrum as does any other student. Yeah. I think if you're seeing diagnosed students who are at a young age, you probably have some level of parental involvement, It's not too much parental involvement from that parent only being in an advocacy role, but for the undiagnosed population, you know, you wouldn't know. Yeah. Very yeah. greatly. And it, and it varies even with the ones who are diagnosed, mm-hmm. because you also have parents who, rightly so, are being told a message that your role changes <laughs> as your student leaves <laughs> K through 12 and goes to college. Um, and the, the student has to increase in terms of their self-advocacy and such. So, you know, I saw the parents who are coming in and saying, I want to be here, but well, I want my student to take the lead, and, you know, I'm the backup because this is a transition
1: really for everybody. But on that note, K through 12, technically for children on the spectrum are K through, was it, 15 or 16, right? So how does that overlap, incorporate what? counties do to what the schools do and how do they coordinate and then
0: what the counties and schools do under IDEA is completely separate from what we do at the post secondary level.
1: So they're usually exclusive.
0: We might see a copy of their plan mm-hmm. as they transition in, but that's it. So. Perhaps
1: strongly suggest when the students come on campus visitors is so there some form that they could sign up saying like parents have permission to view do their work, um, or documents or whatever?
0: There, you mean the FERPA
1: release form? The
0: different form is, yeah, I mean the parent can sign off and they can see some of their, it, it back to 18 and they're go. An
1: yeah, I mean there is
0: a, an official FERPA release form I think through like, the Registrar's Office or something. But um, it doesn't really give them full access to everything, There's just certain things. That they can do. Um, they're not doing anything on behalf of their students for the most part. They might have access to their bill <laughs> and paying it. Really, that's what we want. Oh, but are you talking something like this uh, as to whether they have actually
1: registered with you? Or
0: there could be, in certain situations, there could be, um, you know, a release that the student signs with my department to be able to speak to their parents, but it's very different from.
1: The okay. high school setting where you know we
0: don't reach out to parents, we reach out to students, right? Now, if a parent calls me with a concern, I'll take the phone call, I'll listen to the concern, and I'll follow up with the student. Um, so, it's, but it's it's still kind of different like that. Just the responsibility piece really shifts to that individual who is now considered an adult, right? Being their own um, advocate, they're they're the ones responsible for getting what they need. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, I certainly we have. You know, permissions, and I I won't speak with parents, but it's, I would say, it's not quite the same partnership, at least here, um, as what they're used to in terms of that kind of all around support. And even in like a program, yeah, where it's a program designated for students with autism, it really works on a model to get parents out of the picture and have the students self advocating as soon as possible. you really want the student to be doing it for them because they're going to have to advocate the rest of their lives for themselves. So the longer a parent's involved, the more you're delaying that student from being self-sufficient and learning the skills they need to, to really adapt. So you want some involvement, right, at the beginning, at least getting them set up and letting them know there's resources, but really you want that student to be doing it. Yeah. As uh, think you mentioned that uh, the student has
1: to be self-advocated for that problem. Uh, what if the, the students do not self advocate and, and they are not undi- not diagnosed? And not, how should the professor be sensitive to uh, some kind of behavior? Can you just say, oh, you might have this uh, ASP? Can you, is that a good thing to
0: suspect, or is it not something you should suspect? <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: it's a good question. I think that. Um, I mean, no, we don't want faculty to assume a student has a disability or to presume that they might know what it is specifically, but we can talk about, like, tangible things that they're seeing, right? So if a faculty member says, I'm concerned that you're not coming to class on time, you're turning papers in late, you seem like you're not paying attention during class, you can talk about that, because that's really what you're observing, and then say, is there any kind of support I can help connect you with, and then, you know, I always say, loop disability services right into Academic Resource Center, Counseling and Technological Services, just list the whole array of services that we have here and let the student choose what they want to take advantage of.
1: But so you you cannot single out, say, disability service, you have to Well we don't want to
0: no, you can let them know about disability services. If if you have a disability and you need support, here here it is, but I don't want to, you know, we don't want faculty in the position of presuming students might have whatever disability, I mean, just saying like, you know, it sounds like you might need more support than I can provide as your professor, these are resources I would want you to go talk to to see if it feels like they might be helpful to you, and saying disability support services, counseling, the academic resource center, touch base with all of them, and then, you know, from there we can kind of navigate and see where the students would need to go. Right. Just linking them to resources would be as much as to do. So right. If it feels like it's too much for the professor, or it's outside their scope of reasoning, it would make sense that they link them to a resource. But sometimes bringing that up and being willing to have a conversation will help a student say, "Oh yeah, I did have an IEP in high school, or you know, the if you hear IEP or 504 plan or you know, special letter, or anything like that, then that's a clue. Oh, did you know, that we had you might be eligible for support services here. Here's the information. So um, you know, sometimes just having that dialogue and being being willing to have a conversation could bring that up.
1: Sure. Okay. Okay. Um,
0: okay. So, so sometimes we also see um, some challenges in terms of social behavioral um, problems on the autism uh, spectrum. Again, adjusting to a totally different environment, social rules. You know, that's all nuanced. Um, it's not really very clear sometimes, and students on the spectrum tend to like very clear rules. Um, so that can be difficult. Um, I guess even when you think about <laughs> everything nowadays, like phones and social media and you know online dating and all those different things, it's hard. It's hard to navigate. I would think for quote unquote typical, right? Let alone students on the spectrum. Um, but some of the things, you know, you might see, like we mentioned, difficulty we'll kind of managing time, not utilizing resources the way that they should, um, and navigate, uh, navigating personal and social boundaries That's something that we see, um, unfortunately, a little more commonly than, than we would like to, again, and I think that that's just a desire to have peer relations, other peer relations, and maybe not knowing how to go about negotiating. Like, research shows us that individuals on the section are not disinterested in social relationships, which is a common myth that's out there. They're delayed in their interest in social relationships. So that individual just started becoming interested in friendships and dating, and now they're in a college campus with a lack of structure, and this is now all of a sudden a priority and interest to them. It's going be really hard to figure out how to prioritize the social and the academic when everything's right here on campus for them. So often times in the classroom we might see those excuses like I mentioned before like I didn't do this assignment the time because I was socializing or I, I'm in this class because this seems more appealing to me and like navigating how do I manage these competing demands can be really challenging. And who is it appropriate to mention these demands to and not? Yeah, sometimes more? I feel like uh, students on the spectrum tend to be a little bit too honest with you and <laughs> share too much information if you're like, okay, you're really not supposed to tell me that part. Um. Um, so these are like the strategies we've discussed pretty much uh, throughout is just being really clear what your expectations are and what the rules are. If it's not explicitly stated at the beginning of your course, talking to the student during office hours or offline, not through email, again through in-person contact best. Identify signs of stress and frustration. So students again may appear more disinterested but that could be a sign of internal dysregulation and feeling overwhelmed. Um, students will often shut down and so it'll appear like they're disengaged rather than the fact that they're overwhelmed. Um, their sensory issues may be acting up, they need a few moments to step away and calm down. So you know allowing that to take a break can be really helpful. Redirecting students to get off topic during courses. So I can think of times I've been asked and told where students have been corrected of the professor or interrupting um, or not really responding to that hierarchy within a classroom. So I'm encouraging the student to write down questions if they're over participating. I like the idea of cards. They get three cards during the class and they have to move their cards to the opposite side of the desk. Once those three cards are done, that means they can't participate anymore and they just start writing their questions down on those cards. Um, it gives them something concrete to do and a visual aid to allow them to be able to realize they're over participating. Um, you can set limits ahead of time to have a nonverbal visual sign that allows them to recognize when it's out of line so that they can start internally recognizing when it's happening. And as I mentioned before, in-person contact is so much better than email in general, but especially with these students because tone can't be predicted. Um, And it just doesn't allow for that interaction, doesn't allow for you to comprehension check the same way. So, anytime you can meet in person is most optimal. And then, in terms of, so Jane Deerfield Brown is a big researcher in this area. She came up with a list of identifiable strategies that make an individual most successful in college. So, the individual who's independently motivated, they want to be in college, this isn't their parents' goal for them to be in college. Understands and accept their disability so the student knows what their diagnosis is, knows the limitations and strengths of that diagnosis, and knows what they need to do when they're in distress to get help from the resources that would best serve them. Um, an individual who can self regulate, so it's worked on the fact of knowing what are things that overstimulate them, what are signs that they're in distress, and what can they do to regulate. They can advocate for themselves, so again, they know their diagnosis and they can express in an appropriate way how do I get around this diagnosis. They access their available resources, like DSS, like the Counseling Center, like the Academic Resource Center, and they work in skills to facilitate the transition. So thinking of a who to express with their parents in the room, it's never too early to start, we really advocate starting at like freshman year of high school, knowing like how you can structure accommodations, knowing how to compensate in a classroom environment, knowing social difficulties and how that's going to look at independent living. So really being able to have that individual prepare. Now the reality is that most individuals come in underprepared, and because their parents and lower education systems in K-12 are not really educating families that you need to start this process now, it's really just because we're becoming aware of what the need is. So, if we think about the individuals that are underprepared, they often are over and unofficially accommodated in some of their high school environments. And now they have to advocate for themselves. It's like a recipe for disaster. And that's where we see that low graduation rate. Um, so, we really think about these characteristics because we want to be shaping the individual to eventually get there on their own if they're not already coming in. Are there any specific
1: things about the classroom environment that can make students? that this can feel less comfortable. So for example, um, I took a look at my class in a circle, so people kind of see one another as and they very discussion oriented. So um, I can see how that might be stressful, <laughs> I suppose. So,
0: You know, I think the bigger idea, and I think of this too when we think of students who are having anxiety taking tests, the idea is to prepare the student as much as you can, that this is going to be what the structure is, letting the student recognize themselves what are signs I'm in distress, because we really want the student to be able to adapt to what the circumstance is, what do I need in terms of support to be able to be successful in that environment rather than shifting the classroom to the student. The student is really in college trying to learn how, okay, this is a situation I hadn't been in before. I'm in a circle. What do I need? And then the professor recognizing that they're distressed often because they, we're gonna get them to the resources that student needs to access to navigate that situation i um, maybe asking the student if there's a specific spot they would feel more comfortable in near the door so that they can leave if they need a break. Right. Um, are they more comfortable closer to the professor, farther away, Does it make sense for them to be across the circle from you so that if you need to give them a nonverbal sign you can do it. Right, kind of those things to kind of really think in advance about the student. Would
1: Uh, What other questions? teaches, I mean, some of the stuff that assists students with with these kinds of issues. Actually, good practice in general. We talked about, um, for example, Ally and and the the accessibility things that we should be doing anyway because some students are auditory learners and visual, and on and on and on. Right. So, I mean.
0: So assignments. I don't mean actual assignments, but um, like paper, research paper assignments, those should always be written down anyway. I mean, I just think that there maybe there's a way to get the word out about. Listen, here are some best practices that are just good for everybody. You should be writing down your paper assignments and distributing them to students, not just talking about them in class. Right. with all the details in front of them, they're taking notes and they're missing things. of these
1: or with Martha,
0: and I are like, okay, what did she say about the workday <laughs> <laughs> for later? We both missed it. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I think that would be helpful too to say that the faculty, the things you should be doing anyway, just as good practice for all of your students, including written, written paper assignments. Yeah. yeah so there's that whole. I think we've done a, a few things before. It's universal design for right. learning. Right. Overcom right. concept is there's. That's Practices, good practices, right. that every teacher can do to make their um, their course the most accessible to the widest variety of learners. So you're right that um, you know, good, my teachers good teachers are good kids teachers kids. sometimes, right? Right. <laughs> right? And there's whole um, institutes that will come and do training if you want for for universal design for learning. I'm not really an expert, um, but I do I do know some things um, in, in that regard. But you're right that. So there's some things that you can just do up front that benefit a whole lot of students. Not, you know, I find myself doing the presentation like this and saying, well, not just students on the spectrum. Okay. There's just so many students who, who benefit from a lot of these strategies. Mary, so, right. right. doesn't some of that kick back to like the syllabi? I know you've done some of these on like, writing, them, right. writing right. the good syllabus, syllabi. right? Yeah. So yeah. some of this goes, goes right yeah. to that. Like knowing, like having uh, DSS and CAPS and stuff in your syllabus or having right. a clear you would be surprised mm-hmm. sometimes yeah, yeah, some yeah, the I'm not. I'm not surprised. We spend a ton of time on ours because we're regulated by accreditation, right. and our accrediting bodies to ensure that our uh, syllabi look a certain way yeah, and do right. certain things. I want to answer the people in our own department. Ten-page syllabi. I've seen people.
1: I've been doing writing for the curriculum workshops a number of years ago, and. Many people come and say students to give paper assignments, enough students don't do well. They just add to it. So I had a four page paper assignment, research paper assignment. That was in four pages of directions and we sort of oh, oh, yeah. Right. That's great right. like, <laughs> yeah. that. that. like That's not helping anything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You want to put some of this stuff on. Out the blackboard, <laughs> as appendices, whatever, but right. have people do the same thing with their syllabus. And, and if we can't understand it, what are the students' experiencing? Right. exactly. <laughs> on and on and on. can't possibly brain around
1: it. So. Yeah. Hey, um, thank you very much. Um, it seems to me that there are special problems helping students who aren't good self-advocates, mm-hmm. which has been my experience with at least one student um, Spectrum. I wanted to help them. It's difficult when either they didn't know how to best communicate their needs to me, um, or that they weren't always receptive to the help I was trying to give them. So, do you have any advice for like the prior step of like helping them accept help? are happy <laughs> yeah, a happy thing to develop. Do you have self-advocacy stress, is that enough? I think psychologists, I feel like we struggle with this as it
0: is. and I think that that phrase applies so well as much as you can for your students. Sometimes they're having a harder time accepting the help. Um, to me, again, in that gentle but direct way, I think is always more helpful, like I'm concerned. Um, I'm just expressing what you think that they need. I'm worried how this is impacting your academic. Life. we consult with someone else? We talk to one of my colleagues, the DSS, or we talk to a colleague in CAPS Just you know, kind of be gentle, but stating, these are the resources think you need to access because of might concerns that find is helpful and our still does we work, but kind of primes them a little bit to it. Yeah, and I mean, if you know that a student is affiliated with this one the school services, you can reach out to what we share some information, maybe not everything. Um, but also that includes <laughs> me in, oh wait, let me reach out to the students. And again, they don't have to respond to me, they don't have to come to my appointments, they don't have to accept my call either, and that is a big transition from eight through twelve to higher ed. Um, so it, it can be frustrating when you know that it really is frustrating. When you know that they could be more successful if they just kind of be more willing to engage with the resources that we have you know so many great resources um, but I guess I have to step back sometimes I think that's their own journey their own development but they, they are where they are so um, maybe you can meet them where they are and offer and if they don't buy. sometimes they have to go through a and sometimes it's that natural consequence but that's actually most effective for them and learning that like okay I didn't do this this is the consequence that happened if they then start like kind of making them recognize right, I mean, what do I need to do so I don't get that complicated again. Um, it's a hard process to be sitting on our end of it because you know what the student could be doing and you want to do and help and manage the student, but ultimately it becomes their choice what they do it going to like, yeah. feel hard if they don't have those initial innate skills of doing it, but it really is their choice. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you you very much. Thanks to all of you.
1: And I will be doing um, a universal design session in the fall again.